This is Gil Manser welcoming you to a special tribute to Sonoma County's entrepreneurial spirit on word-by-word conversations with writers at KRCB-FM 91.1 or streaming online at krcb.org. Our guests tonight are the co-founders of their local businesses and co-authors of books about the impacts of wine and lavender on themselves, the community, and the planet. Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan are the co-founders of the Barefoot Wine brand and co-authors of The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built the Number One Wine Brand. In late-breaking news, Bonnie and Michael's book premiered Monday in the number two spot on the paper book business book section of the New York Times bestsellers list. Rebecca Rosenberg and her husband Gary are the co-founders of Sonoma Lavender and co-authors of the beautiful photo essay book Lavender Fields of America, a new crop of American farmer. Bonnie, Michael, and Rebecca, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Now, I have an obvious question for since both of you are in relationships or you're couples who are also business partners. So I'm going to start with, uh, with Bonnie and Michael. And how do you keep happily married or connected during all this time? Well, that's an excellent question. First of all, being in business with your significant other, your romantic partner, doesn't work for everybody. Um, it's very fortunate for Michael and me that it did work. There has to be certain rules and limitations set out that you all agree to. And it really helps, I think, not only in a romantic relationship, but any kind of partner that you have in business. If you've got different skills, and we certainly have different skill sets, we have the same goals, but we approach them from different ways. I also think that it's important to understand that when you do have a disagreement with your significant other in in a business matter, that they are coming from a place to want to have the best for you, to want to have the best for the company. And when you understand that, you don't look at the disagreement in an egotistical way. You tend to say, I don't care who's right. I only care what's right. Right. And Rebecca, how about you and Gary? We have been in business for 14 years now. And I think the biggest lesson that we ever learned was what you just said, Mike, that it's you don't always have to be right because there are always two sides to an issue. And as you said, Bonnie, it's it's where you're coming from, that you're on the same team, you have the same goals. And in a way, to me, when you're a couple, there's less ego involved. We don't have to win. We want the company to win. And we have a lot of respect for the other person. Right. Well, Bonnie, interestingly enough, your book, which is a lot about the wine business, and it's kind of a primer on things nobody knew probably before they picked the book up. And it's also a romance. But it's also a story that could start out by saying, a woman walked into a bar. Yes. Yes, that's uh, how Michael – that's how Michael and I met each other was, yes, I did – I walked into a bar and he spotted me in the doorway and came right up. And said, I bet you're looking for a drink. <laughs> Opening such line. Such a line. You're yeah. such a fox. Was, was it Chardonnay or not? No. No, actually, uh, I don't remember what I had that night. <laughs> I remember most of that evening, though. Mm-hmm. Well, you basically ended up in a little kind of farmhouse on the ranch that was used to be owned by um, the man who everybody knows from My Three Sons on TV, Fred McMurray. June Haber was his wife. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Right. And... Um, 
So tell us a little bit about living there, how you ended up on that little part of uh, God's country. Well, we went out for a ride after we'd been together for about three days. And I said, you know, I'm going to take you on a ride uh, in a part of the world that I think is probably the most beautiful part of the world. It was West Side Road. Mm -hmm. And so we crossed Waller Bridge and we started to cruise up West Side Road. And as we went around a corner, we saw this little ranch house up on the hill. And I, and I said to Bonnie, I said, you know, that's the kind of a house that I would really like to live in. One year later, we moved, moved into that very house, which is very ironic yes. and uh, kind of magical. Sounds like a movie script. Uh, and we rented from Fred McMurray uh, f- and his family for uh, 14 years. And that's where Barefoot got started. Uh, it had a laundry room. We couldn't afford a washer and dryer. So we had room for an office. And that's where Barefoot got started. Yeah, that's neat. And you tell the story in your book, The Lavender Fields of America, which is an interesting – maybe we should tell each other you know, a little bit about that book and how it's structured because it's not the traditional um, like coffee table book. Yeah. It's really uh, a story about all the different lavender farmers that there are across the country. And again, we started the business 14 years ago. We thought we were totally unique mm-hmm. and – we Then we started hearing about other lavender farmers here and there in our travels, and we got very curious about them. Did they start the same reason we did, and what? How, where did they come at this from? Mm-hmm. And so we just did this book last year, and it was so much fun to be able to meet everybody from farmers from Maui to the Hamptons and why they started because they're, they were all inspired with lavender – but for completely different reasons. Hmm. So it's it's a fascinating look at really American farming, of which there isn't a lot of small American farms anymore, and what people are doing with that, the agritourism, right. the spirituality, the products they're making, that type of thing. Now, you're also doing – you're semi in the agricultural business, but it's, you buy from wine grape vineyards. Is that right? Well, in our particular field, uh, there's always a great supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The shortage is, is really a shortage of purchase orders. Um, and when you get into the wine industry, you see that there's basically two styles. One style is the uh, tasting room. Mm-hmm where people have to drive from a local metro or they might even fly from other parts of the world and make the wine country a destination and they go to your tasting room and they buy wine from you. Those wineries can survive at the uh, $25 to $95 a bottle price point. Right. Then there's a whole different business, and that's the marketing business where you're selling wines that are, say, under $20. Mm-hmm. And those wines – Really, you can't afford to sell those in the tasting room. You have to sell them in retail. And in order to do that, you have to go through interstate commerce. You have to understand the laws of every state. You have to understand the processes by which wine gets to your consumer. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to understand the supermarkets uh, and all of their policies and procedures. And they're different for every supermarket chain. And you also have to understand the distribution system. And then up against that dynamic is 
the fact that there's major consolidation taking place in all of those areas of production, distribution, and exchange. And so we learned how to navigate that. Uh, it was painful, uh, and it was a real wake-up call for us because we found out we weren't really in the wine business. Mm-hmm. We found out that we were in the distribution management business. Right. You know, we could have been selling hammers, but uh, we love the <laughs> well, wine. Well, they, they don't perish in the, when they get too warm, though, right? Not, not necessarily. Uh, but I, I do think uh, we really love the wine industry. Uh, the people in it are great. You know, they're, they're cooperative, collaborative, uh, cooperative people, uh, unlike many industries. So uh, we were very happy to be part of that industry. Uh, I think the whole idea of... Uh, getting involved in a business like that at a lower price point, you really can't focus on production. You really have to focus on sales, marketing, and distribution because the production is there. There's always people who Mm -hmm. have too many grapes. Mm -hmm. There's always farmers that want to sell their grapes. There's wineries with too much bulk wine. So as I said, going out and creating a market for that is what we did at Barefoot. Bonnie, when Michael came home after that visit that he talks about in Barefoot Spirit from Chateau Souverain and said they got an awful lot of wine sitting out in this big steam locomotive that's shiny and has lots of moving parts, right? Mm-hmm. Did you have any idea that that was going to start an adventure like this? No. we. It, I knew that it opened the door for us to do research and to understand more about the wine industry, and we set about doing that. I researched getting uh, licenses and all the compliance that was required to bottle. Now, I was getting the licenses for my client, who was the grape grower that was owed the money for the grapes that Michael was able to negotiate the trade for bottling services and bulk wine. And Michael went into the marketplace. So, yes, we thought we'd have a few months' worth of research and turn the business over to my client so he could, you know, sell the product and get paid for his grapes. Mm -hmm. But um, he was already quite involved as a winemaker and as a grape grower, and he really didn't have the time or energy or expertise, which we lacked as well, to go into the the industry of selling uh, bottled wine. So that's that was the big surprise is when we realized that in order to keep this going, that we would be taking over the business. We took over the debt. We took over the bottling services, the bulk wine, and we set about creating a label. And um, we had no idea what we were getting into. It was a big shocker. Well, that's a perfect segue. Who would like to read this part where you talk with uh – Don Brown, um, and he gives you advice about what you should have on your label and what kind of uh, bottle you should put things in. Michael also talked to supermarket managers and wine buyers. They were people he hoped to sell the wine to, and they were the ones who watched wine sell in their aisles. One of those was Don Brown, the wine buyer for Lucky Supermarket chain in Northern California and something of a legend in the region's commercial wine culture. Brown was old school before there was an old school. He was gruff, abrupt, sometimes profane, seemingly perpetually irritated. It didn't always win him friends, but his style was the style that got people in and out of his office quickly. It was late summer when Michael went to see Brown in Hayward across the bay from San Francisco. It was a bit like trying to get an interview with royalty if the royalty worked in a concrete industrial park, that is, in dark halls, lo- 
with the low hum of fluorescent lighting and cement floors. Michael signed in, got a visitor's badge, and waited on a small stiff chair outside Brown's office for what seemed like half the afternoon. He sat there, looking down the long cement-walled hallways, expecting a forklift to come whizzing through the office space itself. When Brown finally let him in, Michael sat on another hard folding chair in front of Brown's desk. The office was crowded with wine and spirit sample from companies hoping Brown and Lucky's would carry their lines. Brown went right into his act. Say what you need to say, Brown told Michael, and get out of here. My name is Michael Houlihan, and I just closed a deal with a winery to pay off some debt, Michael said. I'm sitting on thousands of gallons of Cabernet Sauvignon and Sauvignon Blanc. When I bottle it, what should the label look like? Brown's grumpiness eased a notch. You know, Houlihan, nobody's ever asked me that before, Brown said, so I'm going to help you. He looked away from Michael as he said, lest it be interpreted as friendliness. Don't make it a hill, a leap, or a run, or a valley, or a creek, Brown said. I got enough of those already. I can't sell anymore. Don't put a flower on it, and for Christ's sakes, don't make it a chateau. He was getting a little wound up. Michael figured Brown was seeing the rows and rows of identical-sounding wine brands and thinking about how much trouble he had to get them to move. Make the logo the same as the name. It has to be something familiar, something people will recognize and remember. And whatever you do, Brown said, and paused for effect, do it in plain English. Got it, Michael said, trying not to get the man any angrier. He hoped Brown would pick up his wine when it was bottled. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Michael got up to leave. And Houlihan, Brown said, as Michael reached for the door. Make it visible from four feet away. She has to be able to see it when she's pushing her cart down the aisle. Now get out of here. I got work to do. Great. And it's interesting that he mentioned she has to be able to see it when she's going down the aisle. Isn't it? Because that's what you end up realizing is that the prime buyer was the housewife who's shopping for the, the evening meal or the special occasion. What we found is that when the man says, what's for dinner, honey, what he's really saying is take the money, go to the store, make all the brand decisions, fill five bags of groceries in one half hour, come home, put them on the shelf, and cook me dinner. Right. But did you notice how he gave the power, the Uh Uh decision-making power, to the woman? Right. And so— A savvy man. So here we are talking to a buyer of a supermarket. He's telling us 78% of his shoppers are 37-year-old women with professional jobs and two and a half kids. Right. And so that was a big clue to us because we thought, oh, wow, you know, that that type of buyer is not interested in Saturday night wine. Mm-hmm. They're buying wine like a staple. They're buying wine like every day, Tuesday night wine, Wednesday yeah, night right. wine. And so I'm having fish tonight. We need white. They want it to taste the same from year to year to year. And that was the big breakthrough. Barefoot was the first really successful non-vintage national brand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was tough because it was all male buyers in those days. And they themselves. The buyers for the stores. Yes. All the buyers for the stores. The gatekeepers were all male. And uh, they wouldn't have bought a bottle of wine without a date on it themselves. So even though they had predominantly women shoppers, they really, at the, in those days, hadn't put it together, mm. as we say, that she cared more about spinach than she did about vintage. Right. And so we put it together and said, well, let's blend different vintages to give her a consistent taste profile so she can depend on it. 
just like her sugar, just like the bread, just like everything she buys that's a staple. She wants it to not surprise her. Consistent. Yeah. So, Bonnie, this is where you come in, at least in the story in the book, because uh, Davis Bynum is a neighbor. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And he was he... just living a mile up the road. Right. And he had a brand that was kind of dormant at the time that he'd been selling for a while called Davis Barefoot Bynum. Barefoot yes. Bynum. And that um, – do you who thought up the idea of talking to him? Well, coming up with a good idea, who who came up with it is always a confusing part for us. <laughs> We we worked together on the ideas, but Michael had known him when he was in Berkeley and Albany, where he'd started his his barefoot Bynum winery, mm-hmm. and uh, he hadn't had it on the shelf for I think it was seventeen years. So, except for one anniversary bottling that he had done, he'd since moved up to Sonoma County on West Side Road, and he had a premium winery, the Davis Bynum Winery, and. Um, it fit the description of what uh, Don Brown had told Michael that he was looking for. The name of the product, uh, Barefoot, was the same as the logo. And putting a big foot on the label, we could put it on the shelf and the shopper would be able to see it four feet away. So it just uh, it just seemed pretty logical to us to, to do that. Well, it actually wasn't a big foot, at least in the story that you tell. It was a very delicate, dainty <laughs> But a recognizable female foot, is that right? You're, you're grinning over there. We designed it on a blackboard. I realized what the label should look like and, and how it would be at an angle so it looked like an italicized exclamation point with the word barefoot coming into the arch. So we gave that drawing to an artist in Hollywood and asked her to create uh, – an image for the label. And she kept coming back with kind of funny-looking feet. They were kind of square and brick and, and um, squatty. Flintstone feet. And I said, well, the, the arch has to be higher. <laughs> long, make it long and do this and that. And she says, she kept giving me these that weren't working for me. And she said, well, you're going to have to show me a picture of what it is that you want me to draw. And I thought, it was a long foot with a high arch. I've got one of those right here on the end of my leg. <laughs> so I sent Michael out to get the biggest ink pad he could find. He brought it back, and I put my foot in the ink pad and on some artist paper and sent that off to the artist. And that's what she used to create the label. That's a wonderful story. One of those, which is kind of the interesting way that your book is done. It's a section, a collection of anecdotes. There's some conversations. I don't know if they're real ones that you sat in front of a tape recorder and did, or they're just composites done by. You have a co-writer on this, uh, Rick Cushman, who obviously helped in in the process of getting this together as well. It's called the Barefoot Spirit: How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand. Now we're going to turn back to. Rebecca and her Lavender Fields of America, because we talked a little bit about putting your book together, but we haven't Mm -hmm. talked about how you ended up in the lavender business. In the book, you tell about snipping off little bits of uh, dried lavender that you find at Stinson Beach, and that Mm -hmm. kind of, you like the smell in your bedroom. Well, lavender lavender grows in a lot of places, and one particular garden that we were in had this old dead lavender bush must have been, um, now that I understand lavender, must have been 25 years old and no one had ever touched it. And it was completely dead. And I walked by it and broke off a branch and was so enamored with what it smelled like that I gathered all of these dead branches up and took them home and put them in a basket and started reading about lavender. But at that time, we had 
two businesses going on the peninsula, and we were very far from having a lavender field. But we did live up in – we had a second home up here in Kenwood. Mm And every time we came to that home with acreage, just we just had cows out in the pasture. Uh, we, I thought, how can I get up to God's country? As we all can agree that this is God's country. And more and more, I started reading about lavender and what we could do with lavender. And at that time, 15 years ago, lavender was not really grown here a lot. So I had to really dig for what do you do with lavender? By here, do you mean Sonoma County or California or what? Well, Sonoma County, California, even America. It's grown – it has been grown for hundreds of years in France and in England, um, but not really so much here. And um, so I started researching what lavender could do and found out that it has medicinal qualities. It's antiseptic. It is an analgesic, so it takes away pain. It's really quite an amazing medicine that has been used for medicine in the wars and still Mm -hmm. is used Mm -hmm. as medicine. It calms people down. You probably know all these wonderful lavender facts. But pretty soon I became very sure that what I wanted to do, what we wanted to do was come up and have a lavender field and start making products. And what I read, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you, you turned to Gary and said, why don't we do this? And he <laughs> says, why, why should we do this? And he says, well, why not? <laughs> well, we it made sense. We had small children and we wanted to live this lifestyle. I think for us, it's all about lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And being up here in Sonoma and growing lavender is so relaxed and so lovely compared to the world. We had an advertising and marketing agency, and that was national. And I was working uh, 24-7 and trying to um, deal with that. And we had another company, a doll importer, Mm. a doll import company. And so that just got to be too much. And all I wanted to do is lay in that beautiful field of lavender. So we took our expertise, much as you guys did, and said, well, we can apply everything that we know about marketing to lavender. And it's similar. You were talking before about how different companies in wine sell differently. And the same is true, and I cover that in our book, because most of these farms in here uh, exist on ecotourism. So they invite people to the farm, and you get to experience the wonderful world of lavender that they create. And that's what they do throughout the whole year, or maybe for six months, they'll do that. And our business, we don't allow people on our farm. We manufacture products, and that was always our intent, to manufacture all the wonderful products that lavender could create. And we sell them to 4,000 stores, spas, resorts across the country. So we're kind of on that end of it. Now, let's let's ask a question here because yes. I'm pretending that I'm the listener out there who may not know anything about okay. lavender, may know more about wine because we're yeah. Sonoma County. We know it's a grape and you squish it with your feet and you put it in a big barrel and then you put it in a <laughs> bottle and drink it. And uh, right? A few other things along <laughs> That's the exactly, exactly what happens. That's well, right. at least we know but that we But with lavender, it. Yes. It, isn't it, is it the oil that has the ester, the, the essence of the smell? It or? is the oil, but the flowers themselves, mm-hmm. if you pick up a blossom of a lavender plant and 
squish it in your hands, right. you will smell the oil that's in there. In fact, it's in the leaves, it's in the stems, it's in everything. And as you may know, there are hundreds of types of lavender, and the different types are good for different uses as well. Okay, one of the things I should let everyone understand that's going on is you have bought, brought in some lavender bookmarks, which we have in the book. So the whole room... Yeah. Is infused with lavender. Is already. it smelling like lavender? Oh yes. Can Don't you, you smell, smell it? it? She's because probably very I, used to it. I know. I live. I live on a lavender field. I work in lavender all day. I have no idea. But I guess everything in our office is permeated with right. lavender. Not bad. Yeah. No. Very nice. It's better than the musk of the. Uh, Second crush, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. There's nothing like that smell. I love that. <laughs> the smell of wine. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So um, your book is a composite of uh, visits to how many different um, um, lavender farms? Are they called farms? Yes. We have, I believe we chose 20 lavender farms mm-hmm. out of the 300 or so that are in America. Right. And those are – so we have 300 farms that call themselves a lavender farm, and there are more than that. You know, there are people now growing. And all of that happened in the past 15 years. Wow. So that's kind of exciting. And that was one thing – one reason we wanted to write this book is why, why did that happen? How did it happen? What made all these people get into it? And so we were lucky enough to interview all the farmers and find out what their backgrounds are. And I think that's what I – find fascinating about the book is that it is the backstories. No one was born a lavender farmer or a winemaker, I might say, but they came at it because they were completely enamored with an herb. How does that happen? It's different than business. You know, it's really different than getting being a farmer of corn or wheat or something like that that you do for business. It's really about, wow, lavender is an amazing amazing herb that we're given and how and how can I use it and how can I share it with people mm-hmm. one of the farms the first farm that we show is from Maui Hawaii right and they should not be able to grow lavender at all well that was the, the question is the, the, what most of these seem to be in what I guess call mountainous areas would you say or they they're um, well like the first one and the last one the last one's the Hamptons so mm-hmm. it's and we were there last summer it's way out on Long Island at the very end of Long Island very so flat. it's very yeah. flat yeah. so what I love too is that people are trying to grow lavender everywhere because they love it so much and when we're at the gift shows and we meet people from Nebraska or Florida or somewhere that can't really grow lavender, they're just, you know, sad that they can't have it. But I think like the Hawaii, the Maui Hawaii, mm-hmm. he his family came, he's a wonderful older gentleman, a native of Hawaii, and he wanted to do something different in Maui other than what they already do. And he actually brought his entire family to our Lavender Festival, and we hosted them. They learned everything that we did and went back and planted the most magnificent lavender farm with views of the whole Pacific wow. Ocean. Wow. And that's, that's pretty exciting. What, the other thing that I loved about meeting all these people is they started to network and not see each other as competitors so much. We were already selling to a lot of them because they can't manufacture all the lavender products themselves. It's impossible. Hmm. And so that's – it's fun to get them all together and start talking and sharing 
all of their ideas. One of the things, too, again, so the listeners know, there's beautiful photographs. So tell us how those came to be. Well, they we took some of them. My husband, Gary, is a photographer. All of ours are by Gary. And also, one thing that's wonderful about a lavender farm is there are lots of people wanting to take photographs of it. And so we asked them, sure, you can take photographs as long as we can maybe use your photographs. Mm-hmm. So the same is true for all of these lavender farms. People come. They take incredible photographs, and they share them. So we have the permission, obviously, of all of the different photographers that are sourced in the book. This is Word by Word on KRCB-FM in Santa Rosa, and you are listening to a conversation with local wine entrepreneurs, Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan, co-authors of the New York Times bestseller, The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Hart built America's number one wine brand. And local lavender entrepreneur Rebecca Rosenberg, co-author of the beautiful photo essay book, Lavender Fields of America, A New Crop of American Farmer. We have been sharing some amusing and insightful anecdotes about creating, producing, and marketing Sonoma County's bounty. There's even more laughter in the next half hour, so stay tuned to North Bay Public Media 91.1 FM where we rejoin our conversation with Rebecca and share a visit to a Maui, Hawaii lavender farm. Let's turn, since we're talking about the the farm in Hawaii, let's turn to page 11. Okay. And the Lilikoi jelly. Okay. Because one of the, throughout the book, there's there are little, uh, what would you call, sidebars? Yeah. There, we and, have a lot of sidebars. And this one, so share that one with our okay. listeners. So this is fun. Uh, cooking with lavender is something that, is very experimental and very exciting, and people have heard of it more now, especially in California, but through the country I'm seeing it more and more. Mm -hmm. And lavender can taste somewhat like rosemary, Um, that kind of idea. It's very pungent. But in this case, they use it as an herb in a sweet product. This is the lavender lily koi. Oh, you would make me say that. (laughs) Lily koi jelly. Passion fruit. Do you know? Oh, it's passion fruit? Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's the Hawaiian name for that. Oh, how do you pronounce it, though? Lilikoi. Oh, good. I did it. Lilikoi is a delicious passion fruit grown in upcountry Maui. Infused with lavender, it creates a tangy, sweet jelly that is excellent on biscuits, toasts, scones, bagels, or as a glaze over Cornish hens or ham. Add two scoops in a pan when frying shrimp and create your own version of sweet and sour shrimp. That's beautiful. And That's then fine. We then you give the recipe. Yeah, it's yeah. it's wonderful, and we have the recipe. So cooking with lavender, you can cook with it sweet. And in that case, I would use the English lavender because it has a more perfumey, lighter taste. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to use it as an herb, like in um, on chicken or rubs or that type of thing. Like then, a rosemary substitute? Exactly. Then you would use the Provence. The French. And I don't. It's French, yes. And I would not recommend, I don't like, the Grosso, which we have a lot of here in California, and and it's beautiful. So it's a great, gorgeous, huge, dark purple plant. And what it's used for, they're growing a lot of that all over the world, and it's used in our cleaning products. So it has a very, if you want to taste a flower, you can see what I mean. It's got a very sharp taste to it. It also attracts butterflies like crazy. I love all of these lavenders. And at our farm, we have 35 different varieties to look at. 
We're going to go back to Barefoot and your book, Your Barefoot Spirit. One of the things that I... Um, what's the word I want to use? That's, I'm going to pick it carefully. I was delightedly surprised about was your... In, in addition to your entrepreneurial spirit, you have a spirit of sharing and building up causes or events or activities with which you have a, uh, a common bond. And I want you to read a little bit about Disloyal Randy Arnold. It's on page 105, okay? And you, you know where I'm going with this because there's a, a wonderful quote from the man you're talking about. I've got it right here for you. And this one I marked start and stop, so... It's simple. You want to read again? Or are you going to read for us, Bonnie? Michael and Randy chatted more about selling barefoot. These were two creative marketeers and independent thinkers who saw possibilities beyond the conventional wisdom. They had an instant friendship. If there's anything I can do to help, let me know, Michael said as they were winding down. I can send you more stuff or come talk to your team or anything else you want. Randy was quiet for a moment. There's one thing, he said. I don't think I'm appreciated very much at my company. It would be great if you could tell my boss you're happy with our performance. Really, Michael said. How could they not appreciate you? You're selling 80% of everything they move for us. I don't know, Randy said. Anyway, if you could put in a good word, that would be nice. A week later, Michael did more than put in a good word. He took Randy's boss to lunch. They were at a steakhouse on the San Francisco Peninsula, and Michael was singing Randy's praises. That man is some kind of salesman, Michael told him. The boss looked bored. This guy's making you a ton of money, Michael said. Yeah, I don't know, the boss said. What do you mean, Michael said. Did you know, the boss said, that he's gay? (laughs) So, Michael said. You can't trust them, the guy said. What are you talking about, Michael said. They're disloyal. They'll stab you in the back. Michael was listening to the guy and thinking, what a jerk. (laughs) He had to stop himself from getting up and leaving. He was also thinking he couldn't wait for the lunch to end to call Randy. Right after the lunch, he went to a pay phone as the boss drove away. He got hold of Randy. I just had lunch with your boss, Michael told him. If you ever get tired of that crap... I'll make you my national sales manager tomorrow. I really appreciate that, Randy said, and I appreciate you trying to help me. But I've been with this company a long time, and I feel a sense of loyalty. Maybe we'll get a management change soon. That's what Randy said. Loyalty. Michael was torn between noting the irony and wanting to chase down the boss. I understand, Michael said. Listen to me, though. The offer stands today, tomorrow, whenever. You call me if you need to, and and we'll be there. Over the next few months, the North Bay Territory kept booming for Barefoot. Sales climbed, the team piled on new stores, and the reorders flew in. Michael sent Randy and his crew every new Barefoot flyer and poster they made. The pattern continued for nearly a year. Then Michael got a call from Randy. I quit today, he told Michael. I just couldn't take it anymore. So you're coming to work for us, Michael said. I don't know, Randy said. I don't know if I still want to work in the industry. It's not the industry, Michael said. Some people are just jerks. I know. I'm just worn out. 
Here's what you do, Michael said. Take a month and relax. Go to Hawaii and get a tan. Call me when you get back. This offer isn't going away. Okay, Randy said. Thanks, I'll do that. I don't know if I'll change my mind, but I'll call. Randy didn't actually go to Hawaii. He worried about the money. He'd just quit his job. Instead, he stayed at home in Concord, about 30 miles east of San Francisco, and planted and nursed a vegetable garden. It would be the best and, in truth, only good vegetable garden he would have for years. A month later, Randy called Michael to tell him what he'd decided. Is that offer still open, Randy asked? Right. Very wise move on your part, it turned out. Yes. <clears throat> so many different reasons. Because Randy was one of your best, uh, what do they call them, barefooters? He was. Uh, we gave them the term barefooters uh, because they represented the brand, and they didn't just police the shelves to make sure that the brand was still there and that the distributor was doing his job. But they actually went into the neighborhoods that were surrounding the places where our product was placed to find out what the groups were and, and how we could support those groups and help them achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. So you began pouring wines at a, at a large number of street festivals and fundraisers for worthy causes all around the Bay Area primarily. Oh, yeah. Everything from the Renaissance Fair to uh, uh, free Shakespeare in the park, mm -hmm. uh, all, all kinds of uh, different uh, groups, uh, raising money for the uh, gay and lesbian uh, wing of the San Francisco Library, um, Surfrider Foundation, mm -hmm. uh, Save Mono Lake, uh, keep Lake Tahoe blue, and on and on. Right. But you had ran into some interesting um, conundrums when you won the gold medal at the Sonoma County. Uh, was that the fair or the uh, wine the, the harvest festival? It was the Sonoma County Harvest Fair, which it was the wine competition part. Right. And it was right after we'd bottled. We'd bottled in um, Easter of 1986, and so this was the harvest fair of that year, and we'd entered our Sauvignon Blanc and our Cabernet Sauvignon. Our Sauvignon Blanc took a gold medal. We were just beside ourselves with joy. This is a $5 pig of a bottle, too. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> so um, it seems like the judges uh, weren't – it was all blind tasting. So this is the wine that they thought was the very best. And it should have gotten an award because it was Alexander Valley fruit. So it, it was a superb product. Um, if your product takes an award at the Harvest Fair, you pour the following Sunday. Mm -hmm. So that's what we've been told. We were all excited. We poured for the public uh, virtually for the first time. We were standing behind our table pouring our wine and just having a great time and and really loving our gold medal, and a very serious-looking man came up to our booth in a dark, dreary suit, and he said, uh, do, you, do you have a license for that? And I said, well, I mean, yes, we've got a gold medal. We, we just won it. Look, here it is. We've got our Sauvignon Blanc. And um, he said, no, do you have a license to pour for the public? And I said, well, I guess we do. We were told by the officials here at the, the Harvest Fair that we had to pour today. He says... I don't think you have a license to pour for the public. And it started to dawn on me that he might be an official that knew more about it than I did. Because as far as I knew, it was fine. Come to find out it wasn't fine, and we didn't have a license to pour. And um, he said, we'll be in touch with you. And he gave me his card. 
And I said, uh-oh, I think we're in trouble now. Um, we didn't have a uh, winery. We didn't have a bottling line or a storage room or a tasting room or even a vineyard. We contracted for all those services. Mm-hmm. You did have a laundry room, though. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. Um, that was just for use for business, though. We, we weren't making any wine out of there. Um, Could have made some in the, in the laundry tub. <laughs> <laughs> but we we were actually fined uh i think he said five thousand dollars or 10 days 10 business days without selling product without selling to our distributors and retailers and since we didn't have the five thousand dollars we had to stop selling our product for that length of time and it really opened our eyes to the fact that we'd better be paying attention to what kind of licenses we needed and that was probably about the time that we started researching further how we could be pouring for the public and how we could legally um, – a lot of the, the wines that we were donating, the uh, nonprofit was doing the actual pouring. They were handling the product. Right. And we would be there to talk to their groups, to their membership about whatever uh, cause that, that we were supporting and, and that the fundraiser was for and, and spreading the word about that as well as about our product. But just – Touching the bottle, opening the bottle, and pouring the bottle for the public, we found out the hard way that we didn't have the proper licenses. Right. And the the people you were working with would probably get a license for the day or weekend from the ABC. Yes, right. exactly. There, the other thing is that you're, you've got a convoluted set of laws left over from pro and post-prohibition. You've got California reacting to different activities, you know, that occur in the, the wineries, et cetera, et cetera. But you guys – and a lot of people should thank you for this, came up with a way to have several wineries share the license. Is that an essence of what happened? It's called an alternating premise. Okay. Yes, the the, uh, the facility is owned by uh, a winery, by a company. And when a small producer or a grape grower wants to crush his grapes and bottle his, his wine, um, he'll hang his license on the bottling line, and for that period of time, he will own that premise. Mm. It's a licensed premise, mm-hmm. which means that it has fulfilled all the obligations that the authorities say it must have, and the taxes are paid, and everything is is in order. All compliance issues are met, and the responsibility for that is on the winery that is hanging the alternating premise on the line at that time. Mm-hmm. It gives them all the responsibility, and um, finally there was a license that they were granted uh, to allow this to happen. And yes, I'm very happy to say that Michael and I and Barefoot Sellers was part of uh, making that happen. We were one of the pioneers in that alternating premise right. license. And a lot of the small runs of wine now that are done that way and being are being able to pour it because of that alternating license thing. Do you have in lavender? Mm-hmm. Now you tell us what you create from your fields. All of the Sonoma lavender products of which there are about 300 mm. we wow. produce in Santa Rosa. Right. And there are so many licenses and so many different governing factors that you are not aware of in the beginning and that you quickly become aware of. And also on the farm, you know, what the county will allow and not allow. You think you're part of an organization like you were at the wine event and we were part of farm trails. 
and you think that that means something, but you don't. You know, you don't really have your licenses. It's the Farm and Bureau, your but it doesn't give you any. It yeah, doesn't give you yeah. licenses and permits, right. as my husband can attest, having <laughs> just gotten the. I think he has to go to about ten different organizations physically, and present what we're doing and get approval from them to do the lavender festival. Mm. But we've also had many state officials and county officials show up at the office and see where people are sitting within the whole operation and what they're doing. And then since we make soaps and candles and do a lot of sewing and we do a lot of different things, so then we have a lot of different different laws. The fun part. So that's Gary's part is all that hard stuff. And you get to, to dream up how to I do. The I, I labels get to, will look and such. I get to design all the products that we do and figure out how to make all the products and train people how to make them. And I love the fact that we have we've had between um, twenty five and fifty seamstresses at any one time and I love that to have that in Sonoma County. I don't think there's And they're much sewing that. that many people are sewing what? Are we make uh, one of the product lines, and this is probably the biggest things that we make, are the heated spa products, oh, right. the neck right. pillows yes. and heat wraps and is things. Is that buckwheat and, and lavender? It's, it's actually flax seed, oh, okay. which works better than buckwheat. Yeah, it doesn't sprout. <laughs> right. And it's not crunchy and large, and it has a lot of oil content, so it holds the heat longer. So we're, we're kind of at the premium end of that sort of thing. Neat. Yeah. Very neat. Well, I'm going to go back to our little... Uh, Laundry room, office, whatever, the you know, design inspiration place, you you name it. And I'd like you, probably Michael, because you were the one that came up with the duct tape and plastic gutter solution. But tell us what the problem was. Well, we had graduated from our laundry room to the attic oh, okay. at the Davis Spine Winery. Um, it had uh, no windows, but it did have a skylight which was good news because there was natural light. Uh, the bad news was that it leaked like crazy whenever <laughs> it rained. Uh, the water came in from all around the edge. And so we went to uh, Davis uh, Bynum and said, you know, uh, Dave, you really got to fix the roof up there. Uh, it's it's leaking. He says, oh, I, you know, I, I don't have time for that right now. You know, I'll, I'll take a look at it later. And so time went on and we kept asking and get putting off and putting off. And it got so bad that, you know, people wouldn't show up for work. And we say, well, what happened to Mary? And Mary came to work and there was, you know, her her computer and her chair was in a puddle of water, you know. <laughs> so she left in disgust. And so we said, well, we got to fix this somehow. So we got the idea that we would go up to the Home Depot and buy a bunch of plastic roofing gutter. And we put it on the inside instead of putting it on the outside. We put it on the inside to catch all the drips around the skylight. <laughs> and then we put a pipe on the end of it and ran it out the window. Sounds good to so me. So when it was raining, <laughs> the water would drip inside our office. Okay. You know, it was, it was kind of nice to have that water, like a little waterfall in your office. And then it would go outside. Now, Bonnie's looking for the illustration that shows that, but I want everybody at home just to close their eyes and assume you're sitting around a a table, your kitchen table, and above you is the skylight, and there's this rectangle of plastic piping catching the drips and then a 
zooming it out the the window. I hope he doesn't fix your house like that, Bonnie. <laughs> no, it's amazing uh, how much entrepreneurs depend on duct tape. That's right. <laughs> well, you had you told the story, Bonnie, of the uh, the man in the suit who had bad news. The man That's from the licensing agency, but you had people in a suit who arrived and sat under the beautiful ductwork uh, from Japan who yes. had good news. So you want to, you want to read that or share it with us? Well, I can read it if you'd like. Okay, it starts. Uh, let me give you the page here. Start. Start. You found it. I Good. did. Yes. So it was um, a group of Japanese businessmen, and there was one interpreter, and the rest uh, were just speaking Japanese. So they entered the room, and the translator told Michael, "Before we begin." Mr. Matsumoto wants to make something perfectly clear. He opened a briefcase and carefully placed a document in front of Michael. It was from the Bank of America, 555 California Street, San Francisco, and it said $45,000 had been placed in, into an account from Keenan Busan for Barefoot Sellers. These are lines that haven't been filled in, Michael said, to get things started. Yes, the interpreter said. We will talk about that. They went back and forth for a while. This was potentially huge for Barefoot. A serious cash buyer meant no risk, no waiting to get paid, and major help digging out of their hole. Plus, Mr. Mr. Matsumoto implied this wouldn't be a one-time buy. There was a caution flag for Michael, too. Multiple buys meant he had to be careful not to give up too much and get the deal, because whatever they agreed on, if they did agree, probably wouldn't change for future shipments. So they haggled over how many cases the 45000 would buy, what wines, Cabernet or Sauvignon Blanc or both, would be in the deal, and all the other smaller details. Things started to get a little edgy. Often, when a negotiation starts to stall, Japanese businessmen set it aside for a moment and talk about something else. Mr. Hulahan-san, the interpreter said, Mr. Matsumoto wants to know why you have only two barefoots. He meant, why just two varietals? Michael got a playful look. He smiled straight at Mr. Matsumoto. Then Michael put his left foot, boot and all, on the table, followed by his right foot. Michael gave Mr. Matsumoto a palms-up shrug that said, This is all I've got. The room went still. Mr. Matsumoto started laughing. He had a hearty, slap-the-table laugh, and his team laughed with him. Whenever tension had been in the room was gone, Mr. Matsumoto slowed his laugh, and then it kicked in again. He brought his interpreter to his end of the table and spoke to him. The interpreter came back to Michael. Mr. Matsumoto respectfully asked, the translator said, if you would print the back labels in Japanese. That was it. There was going to be a deal, and now they were just working out the fine points. Michael figured he'd stay with what seemed to be working. He had a barefoot cork in his pocket. He took it out and put it in the interpreter's hand and then folded the man's other hand over it so the cork was covered. Tell Mr. Matsumoto, Michael said, the cork already is printed in Japanese. (laughs) The translator went down to his boss, told him what Michael had said, and showed him the cork. All that was on the cork was the foot. Mr. Matsumoto cracked up again. He passed the cork around to his team, and they all laughed, too. 
Mr. Matsumoto and Keenan Busan eventually bought 20,000 cases of Barefoot. The shipments started in 1989 and would continue until 1992 when the Japanese importers found a better price from a larger company. That deal was more than a near miracle for the struggling barefoot. It was also an affirmation for Michael and Bonnie that they'd chosen a path that was resonating. It was a reminder to trust their plan and what they had learned. And it confirmed to them that the barefoot spirit, that making their wine fun and accessible, that supply being approachable and fun themselves, resonated too. Very nice. What I like about that, aside from the fun story, is it also has this uh, business ethic, this uh, you know 101 uh, exploration of how you created what you were calling the barefoot spirit. You've got a problem. You, how you approach it is not, oh, my dear, oh, my dear, oh, my dear. It's, oh, my gosh, this is an opportunity. Because even the, the Japanese uh, bottling presented a problem because they didn't want the large bottles which did not fit in the refrigerators in the Japanese houses, right? Exactly, exactly. So you, how did you solve that? Well, uh, the large bottles didn't fit in the refrigerator, right. that's for sure. And so we had to gear up 750 bottlings, uh, which did fit. Uh, but at the time we put the deal together, um, we had been approached by many Asian buyers. They usually showed up uh, on Saturday or Sunday uh literally with a briefcase full of money. And uh, they would try to, you know, blow our minds by showing us a briefcase full <laughs> right, of money right. and saying, you know, how much will this buy? And usually the deals would go south uh, after a while. And, you know, you'd have to get all cleaned up on your Saturday. And I wanted to go play in my organic garden and, and go over to the winery and, and deal with these folks. Um, but these guys... They showed up in suits and ties, and, and they were serious. Uh, I have a lot of respect for the Japanese. Uh, I grew up uh, in a family where my father was involved in commerce with the Japanese, and I, I had a lot of respect for the way they conducted business. I mm-hmm. mean, just imagine the idea of saying we want to make something perfectly clear before we start, and the guy hands you you know, a letter of credit for 45 grand. Your name is on it. Right. And that way you know they're serious, and now the question is, what does it buy? So they've, they've uh, honed the meeting down to a few things that we're going to be talking about today, right? And there's no question. Um, but I really uh, appreciated the fact that uh, they, after all, they do have a great sense of humor. And, you know, they could be cracked up. Right. And, uh, and once, once they started laughing, they felt more comfortable with us as suppliers, as human beings, actually. And so that's what the barefoot spirit is really all about. It's, it's about how you treat people. Rebecca, the end of your book mm-hmm. starts with a bee sting. He stung me. Tears ran down her plump cheeks. I petted him, and he stung me. Betrayal glinted in her eyes. This can happen in a field of lavender, although bees are usually too lavender drunk to bother. Do you have a first aid kit? The mother asked. I have one in the barn, I said, but I have a magic potion right here. I waved the bottle of lavender oil in front of the young girl's curious eyes. What's your name? I asked. Michelle. Michelle Mabel. Yes, I did sing that, (laughs) but it seemed to get her attention. I kneeled and took her hand in mine. It's a magic flower potion. I doused the stung red hand with the lavender oil. It takes all the pain away. 
The calming fragrance reached my nose. She sucked in halting breaths and broke into a radiant smile. Apparently, the magic potion had done the trick. Very nice. Thank you. Well, I'm so delighted that you people could come in and share these stories with us and put them down in book form. It's uh, Bonnie Harvey and uh, Michael Houlihan's The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship Hustle Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand. And the full title of your book is Lavender Fields of America, A New Crop of American Farmers by Rebecca and Gary Rosenberg. It's so delightful. And... The opportunity, why you got together, is that you happen to be talking at an upcoming event on June 15th, which is called the Women's Power Strategy Conference, and it's being held at the Wells Fargo Center for the Arts. Uh, We'll run all day. And uh, you're speaking about different things. Let me see if I've got them here. Um, Let's see. A Lavender Field of Dreams, Vicki and Rebecca. So that's Vicki Larson from the IJ, uh, the uh, Independent Journal down in Marin County. Uh And you're talking about the transformations, life bumps, and career shifts that led them to where they are, which would be great for people to tune in and hear. And you're doing, Bonnie, the barefoot spirit of Bonnie Harvey. What a name for for (laughs) a talk right there. Confessing the challenges and solutions she discovered starting and growing the barefoot wine brand for over a 20-year period. So... Both of those uh, are going to be at the conference. As I said, it's on the 15th of this month, June 15th. And uh, the uh, founder of the conference, Patricia V. Davis, is offering two tickets to people who want to call in and talk to Wendy Nicholson at KRCB. So I'm going to read this slowly. That's Wendy Nicholson at 584-2016 and say that you would like a ticket to the wonderful conference of the Women's Power Strategy Conference. And the other thing that's coming up, you made passing references to this, Rebecca, is your wonderful Sonoma... Sonoma Lavender Lavender Festival. Festival. And it's June 22nd and 23rd in Kenwood. Mm -hmm. And we'd like to offer four tickets to come to the Lavender Festival. It's an all-day event, lots to do, um, fun for kids. We have wine and lavender cuisine and pick the lavender, spend the day. That's, again, talk to Wendy Nicholson, 584-2016. So that will be tomorrow morning because they're not open tonight. So uh, where can we find out about you online? SonomaLavender.com. That's easy. And what about Barefoot? BarefootWineFounders.com. BarefootWineFounders.com. All written together. One word. And the uh, Women's Power Strategy Conference.com. So that's all of them. I want to thank you again for joining me on Word by Word. This has been a delightful hour. It's just whizzed by and smells lovely. Uh, thank you, Gil. Thank you. Thank you, Gil. Thank you. You have been listening to North Bay Public Media's locally produced Word by Word conversations with the writer's show on KRCB FM. Tonight's show featured local wine entrepreneurs Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan chatting about their New York Times bestseller, The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand, and local lavender entrepreneur Rebecca Rosenberg, co-author of the beautiful photo essay book, Lavender Fields of America, A New Crop of American Farmer. The studio engineer for tonight's broadcast is Mark Fuller. Our station director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. And I am your host, Gil Manser. We'd like to invite you to join us for the next Word by Word broadcast starting at 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening, July 3rd. Until then, we wish you a busy and productive June filled with celebrations with those you care about and who care about you.